pure in heart, for they shall see God. What do you think of when you hear the word pure? Pure. You might think of pure gold, maybe pure air, purified air, purified water, maybe a purebred dog. Many of us, I'm sure, think of pure Michigan as well when we think of the word pure. Uh, Whenever something is considered to be pure, we know one of two things must be true. Uh, Number one, nothing has ever contaminated it. Nothing has gotten into it to take away its purity. This would be true of those dog breeds, right? Uh, If you have a purebred Labrador Retriever, that puppy's mom and dad both have to be purebred Labrador Retrievers, or otherwise you don't have a purebred lab. A purebred lab cannot have a Cocker Spaniel for a grandma. But when you see that pup, if if that's what he is, it might have a, a lab tail, a lab snout, a lab body, but those big furry, floppy ears are going to give it away, right? When that happens. I'm not sure that's exactly how it would look, but it sounds sounds good. But you know when you see that, something's not quite right. He's not going to make it to that dog show on Thanksgiving Day, is he? <laughs> that was something else that happened in our house on Thanksgiving Day, and all the girls were, aww, every time another dog walked across the, the floor there. But we know this too. Uh, you can't run a mixed-breed puppy through a purifier to get the Cocker Spaniel out. That's not how that works either. It's either pure from the get-go or it's not a purebred dog. But that brings up the second way to purity. The other way something could be called pure is if it was purified, to be purified. Water and air can go through filters to take those impurities out. A gold is melted down. Other chemicals are introduced. Those are used to extract what isn't gold out of the gold uh, to make sure that gold is more pure. And just to help us to get started as we consider this verse today, uh, one of the two kinds of purity that we just mentioned, uh, that which has never been contaminated and uh, that which must be purified from its impurities, of those two, which kind of pure would you say Jesus Christ is? And the the best answer would be that first kind, right? Uh, Christ is eternally righteous, the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. He is our holy, all-righteous Lord and Savior. And you might say this, which kind of pure are Christians? That's a little bit of a trick question, but let me ask it this way, okay? Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, in his shed blood alone for our sin— What kind of purity are we growing in? Well, now we can say, well, it's that second kind, right? Uh, where, Where the impurities are being removed, where we are being purified progressively. Uh, We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. While we were still sinners, God showed his love for us in sending Christ to die in our place. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, So we could say this uh, today, before we go any further. If you're here in this room today and you are a human being, which I assume uh, that you are, you did not come today with a never-having-been-contaminated-with-sin pure heart. We just don't have them. We don't have those. However, many of you came today, and God willing, all of us would leave here today, 
if we didn't come this way with hearts that have been purified and are being purified by God's grace. And I said that was a little bit of a trick question earlier because the truth is, and we'll see this a little bit later, because Christ's righteousness has been put to our account, we actually have both. The never-been-contaminated kind of purity and the purified of our impurities kind of purity, all by God's grace. Now, as we've seen uh, throughout these verses in the Sermon on the Mount, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, all of these characteristics that have been mentioned are ours only through the grace of God. Uh, we are all poor in our sin, uh, though not everybody knows it. We only become poor in spirit when our eyes are opened to the truth of our sin condition. That awareness is a gift of God's grace. We only mourn and grieve our sin when we realize its reality and its gravity. This comes by the grace of God. And by his grace, when we mourn, God brings us comfort. We only become meek when we are surrendered to the lordship of Christ. And it's not in our sinful nature to do such a thing. Meekness is a gift of God's grace. In our sin nature, we are prone to hunger and thirst for more sin, more selfishness. But by the grace of God, our spiritual taste buds get a transplant, don't they? When God makes us new creatures in Christ, and we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we do, God satisfies us. God, in his kindness and love toward us, has granted us mercy, a pardon from the suffering that we deserve. And because we know mercy, we are able to extend mercy to others. And when we extend mercy, the, the mercy that we only know because God showed us what mercy is, when we show mercy, we get mercy. And this is all by the grace of God. And now today we see this idea of being pure in heart. And, and would you agree that without Christ... Without God's grace, we look through this list of the Beatitudes, and, and if left to ourselves and our own devices, this sermon series would just beat us up over and over, blow by blow, week by week. But God. It might beat us up a little bit and, and as we think about the things we can't accomplish on our own, but only to let us see all that God has done, all that Christ has given, so that we walk away rejoicing and secure in his grace. As we think about being pure in heart, we must realize uh, being poor in spirit, uh, having mourned over our sin, having been brought to a spirit of meekness, understanding the great mercy we've been shown, having experienced this new hunger and thirst for righteousness that we simply just didn't have before. We did not come to God pure in heart, with purity in heart, not at all. Uh, as Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, spiritually sick, wicked. And it says, who can understand it? Oh, I know how bad my heart is. No, I don't. Who can understand it? The truth is, if we only listened to our hearts, right? We're told, listen to your heart. If we only listened to our heart, we wouldn't understand it. Our hearts are deceived and our hearts are desperately sick. So we can't go there to learn about ourselves. We instead must look to 
the one who gave us his revelation with a pure heart must look to God's word. So that's what we want to do. What I want to do today is, is see what the Bible says about our hearts so that we can have a better understanding of what it means to be pure in heart. And then we'll take a look at what it means not just, not just to be pure, but what it means to be purified as we grow progressively in this life, as we await the day when we will be completely purified, made completely pure forevermore, seeing Jesus face to face in the presence of God forevermore. So first, the heart. What is the heart of man? And when we see the heart mentioned throughout the Bible, we see it referred to as uh, the seat of emotions, the seat of understanding. So we have, we have right there already feelings and thinking. That's the seat of reason, the seat of motives. Our motives come from the heart, uh, the seat of faith. Our heart is mentioned as, as where our faith is. Uh, the heart is also associated with our conscience, you know, feelings of guilt. Or other things like that. It's the root of our desires. And it's involved in our decision making. The heart is and does all those things. And in our thinking today, we often equate our minds or our brains with thinking. And our hearts with feeling. Just emotions. This is the thinking. I can think about these things clearly when I don't make sure my heart gets in the way, right? In the Bible, often in the Old Testament, you hear the terminology of of the bowels. We might say today your guts or even your intestines. We might use this figure of speech when you have butterflies in your stomach, right? So in, in uh, older times, the, the gut was the seat of our feelings and our hearts maybe, and just use it like a physical presence. The heart would be our seat of all of our thinking. And what we've done more in modern day is just kind of went upstairs with it. And it comes here now, right? The brain is where we do all of our thinking and the heart is where we do all of our feeling. Of course, we know this heart doesn't feel. It just pumps blood through our body, right? But that's how we refer to it. In the Bible, the heart is all of these things. It is who you are. It is the inner man, the inner person. It is the real you. Some call it the engine room. It runs everything, or control room. So we could say it this way. Your intellect, your will, your emotions, all of that is your heart. It's all in your heart. Uh, which means this, and, and I've said this to you before, those Disney princesses, maybe some of you have watched with your daughters, your granddaughters, some of the Barbie movies and all that kind of stuff, and what do they always tell you to do at the, at the climax of the movie? You've got to go and follow your heart. Follow your heart. We already do. All of us already follow our heart. Everyone does. We do what we do because we want what we want. And we want what we want because we think what we think. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth precedes from the heart. We say what we say. We could be saying we do what we do, right? It comes from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these are what defile a person. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow 
the springs of life. That's why it's, it's never really right for a person to do something wrong and then to say, ah, I don't know how that happened. That, that's just not me. And the truth is, yes, it is. It is. Usually what that person means, of course, we know this when they say that, when they say that's not me or maybe somebody else is trying to help them out or cover for them or take us off in the blow and they say, that's, that's just not like them. That's not the kind of person they are. Normally what that means is, is just that they don't normally do things like that. They don't normally actually do those things. But that doesn't mean that the desire was never there. It just means we haven't always acted out on those desires. And right there we see this truth. There are conflicting desires in each one of us. There's a battle going on. We have different things that we want. And we know some of those things to be good desires and some of those things to be wrong desires. And we could even say this, some of the things that we know are the right thing to do, sometimes we want to do those right things for wrong reasons and wrong motives. There's a battle. There's a battle. Uh, Have you ever thought of uh, this or heard this kind of question? I know what my head is telling me what to do. I know what my head is telling me to do, but my heart is telling me to do something else. As if our heart is like the wicked one and our head is the righteous one. And they're never the twain should meet. Um, Or that our head is always smarter and our heart is always just more feeling-oriented and emotional. Or maybe you think of this in old Looney Tunes or something like that where you have this angel version of yourself pops up on this shoulder and tells you the right thing to do. And then, of course, right after that, here comes the devil version of you and is telling you, that you should do the opposite. Go do that thing you want to do. That's what you really want, right? But what is that? When we think those ways, in truth, those are just competing desires. Those are all things we want. All of them residing in our heart. James 4 verse 1 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Your passions at war within you. And then further down, James 4, starting in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And by the way, do you notice something about these verses? Uh, Mourning, humility, purity of heart, submission. Uh, It looks like James is repeating the themes of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? But there in verse 8, we get a great insight into what it means to be pure in heart. Remember, it said in verse 8, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's the competition. There is a competition in our minds, in our hearts. 
competing thoughts, competing desires. And the devil can't make us do anything. When you resist him, he flees. But he can tempt. He can tempt, right? And our mind does enough of that on its own. Some of those competing desires we have are of the temptation sort, aren't they? Things that we would want to do that we know are wrong. Sometimes our mind even wants the temptation, that we're not too upset about it when it arrives. And the battle rages on. So it's not my mind versus my heart. It isn't my intellect versus my feelings. It's my heart versus my heart. My desire versus my other desire. And other desire. And other desire. And I always will do what I want to do most. And we know this too, right? We are so complex in all of this. And and the purity that we need is so far from what we are. We think about our desires. How many of us actually only ever have two desires in a moment? Right? And we go through our whole day from the moment that crazy alarm goes off in the morning. Our first decision has arrived, right? And we have all these desires. Am I going to get up? How am I going to clean up? What am I going to wear? Am I going to do this for breakfast? Am I going to get my coffee first? Am I going to go to work? Am I going to go to work with a good attitude? Am I going to, how am I going to act around other people? How am I going to drive? How am, all the decisions that we make throughout the day. And each one of them, each one of them with competing thoughts and desires going on. Constant battle. Constant warfare. And Christians, it can be exhausting sometimes, can't it? Exhausting as we do this battling. But all those things warring in our minds, the one that prevails is the one that we do. The desire that prevails is the one that results in the action. You might say, well, I, I mean, I, I know that I, <clears throat> I really wanted to do this, this wrong thing, and I, and I didn't do it, so that must not be true. Well, hold on, because the one that is the strongest is the one that prevails. Now that goes back to our motives. You might say, I really wanted to do this bad thing, but I ended up doing this good thing. Okay, well, why did we choose that? Well, I couldn't hurt this person's feeling, and, and I might have been in trouble for doing this, and, and this would have affected. That's why right? We wanted all of these things more than we wanted this. And even if it's the consequences, the greatest desire wins the battle. That's how it works. But the battle rages on. Turning your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. If I have just confused you, don't worry. Sometimes I confuse myself saying that. And we're all in good company. In Romans chapter 7, Uh, This passage, starting in verse 14, we're going to see the battle being waged in the heart of the Apostle Paul, uh, who we might think of as one of the godliest people ever, and who calls himself the chief of all sinners. Get ready for some confusion, okay? Just just telling you ahead of time. Here we go. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, I say, why did I do that? Uh, Why can't I have victory over this? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. Uh, Meaning the fact that I now want to do what's right according to God's word shows that God's doing a work in me. But there's the, those competing desires are there. So verse 17, So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, uh, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, so, <clears throat> so I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. Not outside of me. Inside. For I delight in the law of God but my, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Do you see the struggle? I read that way better this time than I did in the first service. I'll tell you that much. That passage is even hard to read, isn't it? It's just confusing. It's hard. We might read this and say, uh, Paul, are you okay? <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing here, bud? You sound a little confused. And he is. And we are. We are. In Romans 6, we're taught that before Christ, we were slaves to sin, mastered by it. In our sinful, lost condition, uh, we get to do what we want. Even in that condition, we do what we want. And what we want leads us to condemnation and destruction. But God, in his great grace, has made us alive in Christ. Paul says we have become, we've gone from being slaves to sin to becoming slaves to righteousness. And even, it says in Romans 6, obedient from the heart. We are freed from our bondage to sin and now can do righteous things. Get this, because we want to. Because we actually would have a right, pure desire. That was never possible in purity before God gave us new birth in Christ. Even the good we would do wasn't for pure motive. And God looks at the heart. But as Paul is saying here now in Romans 7, that sinful desire that once ruled us, well, it didn't just go away. Now, as Christians, there is a battle being fought in our hearts. It's a battle that must be won, but a battle also that we must be delivered from. Because we can't do it. It isn't a victory that you or I could win. Not on our own. I'll go back to that verse 24, Romans 7:24. The last thing I read was, wretched man that I am. That was Paul's conclusion. But then the request. Remember, being poor in spirit leads to, right? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the answer, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. And then what does the very next verse say? Remember the chapter markings weren't there when Paul wrote this. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, So here's one glorious truth. 
the battle for your purity, for your standing before God as a righteous son, a righteous daughter, that battle has been won for you. It's over. The battle's won through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin, the kind of pure that has never been contaminated, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So in our standing with God, our verdict is not guilty. No crimes committed. Unadulterated, non-contaminated purity. We have that. It is in our possession. That is our standing before God. That kind of purity has already been given to you, put to your account if you've repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in his finished work as your Lord and Savior. I just say to you, if you're here today and you have not done that, if you have not uh, cried out to God, repented of your sin, asked for his forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ, please do it today. Plead with God for mercy because he is rich in mercy. And if you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, you will be saved. And then, knowing that this is what God has already declared for us, that he gives us this standing, we take that knowledge and we look at ourselves. We look at the reality of the battle that we still fight, the double-mindedness that remains. And we say, God, how long? How long is this going to stay like this? And even when we see ourselves growing by the grace of God, we rejoice in that, but the sin remains. And we say, God, how long? And we grieve that. Now look again at Romans 8. I'll go down to verse 18. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You can say it this way, creation longs for when things go back to the way they were before sin. They, creation longs for no sin. And so when we think about our relation to that, this illustration that Paul's using back in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time, that's not us looking around at the world and seeing all of the, the craziness that we might think of in the world today and all those people who are doing those things and those people who are doing those crazy things and those people who are, that's not it. It's the sufferings of this present time in us. And we long for a time when there will be no sin. And it says, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. When we put our faith in Christ, he gives us the first fruits of this day we long for by giving us the Spirit. And in the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Uh, we don't see that yet. 
we are not perfect. Anybody agree with that? We're not perfect. Uh, We have reason to remain humble, and we have reason to hope for what's to come. It says, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. In our battle weariness, in our still yet imperfect uh, purity, we don't even know how to pray like we could pray. We don't yet know. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God knows our hearts perfectly, which means he knows them better than we do. God knows me better than I know me. And he knows the Spirit. That makes sense, right? So when there is praying going on, God, God is able to perfectly differentiate <laughs> between the prayer of the Spirit and my heart. And the Spirit prays for us. And he prays perfectly. And he prays the will of God. And God will answer every one of those prayers. Praise God for that. How amazing is that? And we know, verse 28, that for those who love God, so this is a promise for believers, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. That purity is coming to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those things written in the past tense. As good as done. Now among the many glorious things we can see in this passage, uh, one thing we do want to see here this morning is this. Not only has God gifted us with Christ's unadulterated, non-contaminated purity. We already have that. But he has also promised to purify us from all of our contamination. We are not just going to be pure in standing. We are going to be made pure in ourselves. No more battles. No more double-mindedness. No more passions waging war in us. We will have purity of heart single-mindedness. We will do everything we want to do. (laughs) We don't do that, right, even now. We don't do everything we want because we want competing things. In that day, we will actually get to do everything we want to do. And everything we want to do will be the right thing to do. It will be good. It will be pleasing. It will be entirely pleasing to us to be entirely pleasing to God. Ultimate freedom. Entire purity. We long for that day. And this passage also teaches us that this process uh, that God has promised to complete has already started. If you've put your faith in Christ, you're already on this 
process. You're already working through this process. This is also referred to as uh, progressive sanctification and perfect sanctification. Progressive meaning it's coming along and we're growing step by step. And perfect meaning the day that we need no further sanctification because we are perfectly pure. Okay? Those two things. And the time that we are in now, Christians, is this time of progressive sanctification. And so part of that sanctification, then, is this gaining of ground in that battle. The gaining of ground in our battle against our own sinful passions. And this is not an immediate perfection, is it? Uh, Sometimes people can doubt their salvation because they have the battle going on. I would argue that the fact that you have a battle going on is evidence of your conversion, that you're saved. And evidence of growth in us is not just outward, outward acts of righteousness. One real great sign of growth in us is when we look at our, our day and we see that there is, a, there is less of a battle maybe than there was years ago. And that takes time, doesn't it? And that's not a complete straight-line trajectory either, is it? That's that roller coaster. And there's times that we're tired, right? Times that we're struggling. Times when temptation is the greatest. Maybe even this year has been a harder year than most. Uh, but there's a battle going on. And we grow as we gain ground in this battle. So part of that sanctification, we might say it this way, the root of that changing Where does it come from? The outward change comes from an inner change in this progressive purification of our hearts. Uh, So that brings up the next question. How does God progressively purify our hearts? How does that go? And we know this, it's not by us becoming monks. It's not by isolation. It's not by us putting ourselves away. Uh, The idea, if you think about that, if I think that being away from everybody else is going to make me more spiritual, then what I believe is that the only reason there's anything wrong going on with me is because of all this other stuff around me. But that is not my problem. My problem is in here, in my own heart, in my own sin. So to think that isolation is the answer is is a self-righteousness. That's not the answer. Furthermore, God commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, God has commanded us, church, to bear with one another in love, to speak the truth to one another in love, to work to mutually edify each other as we all grow in Christ's likeness. So isolation prevents me from obeying God and being with God's people and being out in and amongst the world, loving people and pointing them to Jesus is growth. Does that make sense? So we've got to be with people but I cannot rely on myself to be making all the changes. That's a gift of God's grace. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says this, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? The answer is no one. We cannot cleanse our own sin. In Psalm 51, David asked God in his repentance, as he was crying out for for forgiveness, for mercy, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. That's what David asked for. This pure, clean heart is God's doing. It's a work of his grace. So how does he do it? As we just read in Romans 8, prayer certainly plays a part. God uses our prayer to draw us close to him. 
And the Spirit even prays for us when we don't know what to pray. And he always prays for us perfectly. There's also the Word of God. Uh, Check out Ephesians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there. I'm just going to read three verses from Ephesians chapter 5. In this, we're going to get a few encouragements for our husbands here today. So all the men can rejoice at that. As we look at the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how would he do that? As he gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church sacrificially, right? He gave himself up. He sacrificed himself for his bride, for the church. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, his purification going on, by the washing of water with the word. With the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So see this, God, God uses the word of God, the Bible, to cleanse us, to purify us. And towards the purity that is a precious, pure bride being presented to her soon-to-be husband in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We look at traditional uh, marriage ceremonies, that white wedding dress. It's supposed to represent the purity of the bride on her wedding day. We don't deserve that recognition. Right? If we come to Christ on our own with our own merit, there's no splendor there. But God gives it to us by his grace. That's gospel. How did he do it? Christ gave his life for it. The splendor of the bride will be a reflection of the glory of the groom. And God is using the ministry of his word, our, our study of his word, our obedience to his word, to continually change us, to purify us in this life. And this ministry of purification, the word is particularly effective, it would seem, when it focuses our attention on that very splendor of our Savior. Second Corinthians 3 says it this way, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we put our faith in Christ, and we see his glory as we're able uh, through the scriptures, and we could say this too, as we see his glory through the gospel and other means of grace in the church, we see it uh, in our own baptism when we see others being baptized. It's a reminder, isn't it, of the gospel, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of, of the new life that he's created. Uh, when we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the gospel, of his body, his shed blood for our sin, for our purification. And thinking about his work, beholding his glory in his work, purifies our hearts, our fellowship together, our worship together, our service together, the things that God has given the church to see, to read, to do, to do together. God uses all of this to point us to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we behold that, it purifies our hearts. 
We become more like Christ as we behold him. So it's not a find all the commands in the Bible and do your very, very best to make sure that you obey all of them. And if you do, you'll be purified. That did not get us saved, did it? That just showed us what we needed. Instead, we see the gospel. We see the glory of Christ. We behold that. And then we look at those commands and we say, I want to do that. And we obey from the heart. Does that make sense? That's a very different way of looking at it. Until we think of that process in our life of progressive sanctification, but then looking to that day when we are truly made to be just like Jesus, purified. And we get to behold him in all his glory. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not there yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I think that the reason why we're going to be able to see Christ and not freak out, and I'll say this in a little bit, I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes, you'll see in a little bit, because God's already changed us. We change, by God's grace, we see Jesus, and it's glorious. And there's no dread of punishment or fear because we've been purified. And because we know that's coming, it says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God's going to do it. So we have this, purify yourself. God's going to purify you. Do this, God's going to do it. <laughs> Remember last week, we are merciful because God showed us mercy. And when we are merciful, God will show us mercy. What a wonderful cycle that is. And God made us pure in Christ. So pursue purity. Because God's going to completely purify us. Again, that's great. <laughs> Praise God for his grace. This is a winning battle, Christians. The battle's going to be won. It has been won, and it's going to be won. So it's worth the fight in this life. When we consider how wonderful living will be without sin, it makes us hate sin and desire to be purified even more in the here and now. So church, purify yourself as he is pure. And God is going to purify you through these means of grace. Strive for this, and God's doing this in you. And now this is what I was talking about before. Thinking about this. Why won't we be terrified in the presence of the glory of God? We think back to instances in Scripture, the Old Testament and the New, where people see the glory of God, or they see a bit of it, or they realize they were near him. They might even just see an angel, and they hit the deck, right? They say, woe is me, like Isaiah. <clears throat> Some feared they would die, like Manoah, Samson's father. But when we see Christ, we won't be fearing our death. We won't have that dreadful, guilty fear. Why? 
Because when we stand face to face with Christ, by God's grace, there will be no impurity left in us. We will stand before Jesus pure. We will be like him and therefore able to see him for all he is. For all he is. And when we get to see Christ in all his glory, in all his splendor, when we get perfect fellowship with God, there will be nothing else we could possibly need. When we really understand all that we have in Christ, we will understand that we have everything in him. And so I think of this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full. Dwell on this. Look in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, those battles, the fights, the desires that rage even in our own hearts, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this amazing promise. And we have, in a sense, we could say nothing left to do but to praise you for this. You have chosen to give us this gift by your grace. And Lord, we thank you that even even as we strive, as you've called us to do, as we strive for holiness, as we strive for purity. God, we thank you that it is your grace uh, that introduced these desires into our heart. That as we would grow in desiring to read your word, as we would grow in desiring to do uh, righteous things for righteous reasons, God, the praise all goes back to you. And Lord, we pray, knowing that you are going to be faithful to complete the work that you've started in us, knowing that all of this that we long for and look forward to in heaven is as good as done because it is what you have said will happen. God, I pray that that truth, the knowledge of this victory, God, use this, motivate us, that we would pursue purity in this life, knowing that we are fighting a winning battle. And God, there are times when we will be not so sure that that's true. Lord, we pray even in those times for your mercy, for your grace, that we would see you revealing yourself to us in your word, that we would behold the glory of Christ, that our double-mindedness would progressively turn to single-mindedness, that our desire to do things would be a desire that is rooted in the truth of your word and in in your righteousness. And God, that we would be able to see our lives being transformed. And God, we thank you that one day we will be entirely transformed. And even so, come, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.